0: Hello, my name is Dylan Alter. I am an ADHD coach at neuroqueer.org and also at my private coaching business, alternativeadhd.com. I am Non binary, neurodivergent. I have um, Jewish and Choctaw background, and I was only diagnosed in my mid 30s. And building community around neurodivergent queer space is the best thing that's ever happened to me. The research says that we do this better in community. For many of us, for the first time, we can be in a room where we're not the weird one, where we're not too much, where we're not distracted, you know, more than other people. There's magic that happens in that space. There's a lot of relief. There's a lot of grief. There's a lot of joy.
1: Welcome back to Refocused. I'm your host, Lindsay Gensel, and throughout the month of June, this podcast will be uplifting and amplifying some of the incredible queer voices we've met over the last year, both through podcast episodes and over on our Instagram page at refocusedpod Our commitment to creating an inclusive community isn't isolated to just Pride Month. It is something we take into account every time we start to research a topic and book a guest. And now, more than ever, it feels so important to make that commitment known. Neuroqueer is a relatively new term. And as you might have guessed, it refers to a person who is both neurodivergent and queer, like Refocus Together 2022 guest Dylan Alter. And as you'll hear from my chat with Dylan, these two identities, they aren't separate. There's a very strong connection between the two experiences. ADHD was not on Dylan Alter's radar. They had been dealing with depression for about a decade, in treatment and therapy for it, working the programs and support systems, and even taking medication. It helped a bit. But life was constantly in triage, from one emergency to the next. Once they were correctly diagnosed, Dylan found a therapist who specialized in ADHD and started a Facebook group for friends and friends of friends with ADHD. This community kept growing and eventually turned into neuroqueer.org, a community for adults who are LGBTQ plus and neurodiverse. From educational webinars and co-working time to dance parties to get the dishes done, Dylan and the team at neuroqueer.org have found that the process of being diagnosed with ADHD parallels the queer experience in that for a long time, people needed to be something they weren't in a world that wasn't made for them. Now there's a place where people can be authentically themselves get the support and resources they need, and experience a feeling of home that many have never felt before. Building this space is what gets Dylan up in the morning every single day, and it has firmly grounded them in kindness, compassion, and facilitating understanding so an entire community can grow stronger as individuals and together. My conversation with Dylan is one of the 31 stories we shared last October for our first refocus together, our commitment to changing the narrative around neurodiversity for ADHD Awareness Month. October and all of the work leading up to it, and frankly, most of November, were a complete blur of interviews and editing and full-blown overstimulation from having headphones on for the majority of my waking moments. So having this opportunity to take a second and revisit my time with Dylan was such a gift, and I'm so excited for you all to meet them today. Or for some of you, a reintroduction to their incredibly inspiring story. Thank you so much for joining me on Refocused Together and being a part of this very special ADHD Awareness Month project. Thirty-one stories in thirty-one days, and I am so excited to hear a little bit more about yours.
0: Gosh, thank you, thank you. I'm so honored to be included in this, and I just really want to applaud this project that you're doing. I think it's I think it's so important to get you know those those stories from all the areas of the ADHD community we haven't always had that. And we've had this, you know, sort of revolution of ADHD awareness with the pandemic. But so many of us are still very isolated in that experience, unless we're, you know, on Instagram or TikTok. And I think sharing those stories of what it's like does so much to normalize, you know, what we experience personally, you know, in our, in our own minds and, and those, you know, emotional roller coasters. So, so I just want to say thank you for doing this project.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm sure you can relate to the fact that when the idea popped into my head, it was just like, yes, this is it. 31 stories in 31 days. It's a little crazy. It's very ADHD. But the whole point of it is to raise awareness. And what we know now is how different ADHD is for every single person. And I think this is a great way to like you know, like you said, connect people who are missing that connection to somebody who lives life like
0: them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and yes, 31 interviews in 31 days is absolutely one of those ADHD. Sure. I'll move the mountain. Um, and you know, if you, if you find that you need cheerleading, let me know.
1: Bomb <laughs> bombs, I love it. Thank you. Why don't we get started talking about your own diagnosis and when you were diagnosed and what that looked like for you and what initially sparked that conversation?
0: Sure. Yeah. For me, like like so many folks who are diagnosed later in life, you know, it's an unbelievable hurdle to get to get diagnosed with ADHD. It requires, you know, a lot of privilege. I think that there's sort of a, a deep irony at how much executive function it takes to be able to access a diagnosis. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, I, I went in initially, you know, ADHD was not on my radar. I had no idea that that was a thing that was a factor for me. I went in because of, because of depression. I, I, you know, dealt with depression for, for about a decade, been in treatment for depression, been in therapy, you know, really, really, you know, working programs and, and support systems and was even on depression medication. And it, it helped a bit but not enough. It didn't help enough. You know, my my life was still just chaos. I I felt like I was constantly in triage from one emergency to the next. And meanwhile, the day-to-day was just a dumpster fire. You know, I was an attorney and I was great in court and I was great in negotiations, but in the day-to-day management of a business, I was miserable and failed just perpetually at those just little things that seemed like they should be easy and, you know, I was the friend that people would call in an emergency because I would be there reliably in an emergency and could absolutely handle it. But then my inability to consistently keep up with my friends undermined and degraded those relationships and made people feel like I didn't care. And I would tried everything I could think of to make changes in my life and nothing worked. And so I was—I was really in a dark place of, of just frustration and depression, and just not knowing what to do. Uh, and went in for you know evaluations, and this incredibly bright clinician started asking me about my driving history, which in my you know teens and twenties I had a lot of accidents, none in a long time, knock on wood. Uh, and she asked me you know what my bedroom and office looked like, and I said piles but I know where everything is in the piles. <laughs> and she said the most amazing words of has anybody ever suggested ADHD might be a factor? And it was like a bucket of water being thrown on me like no those, that no, nobody had ever suggested those things. you know I, I was excellent in school and often we assume that ADHD is correlated with intelligence. there's absolutely no causal relationship whatsoever. And so that was new information and a brand new perspective. I passed the evaluations for ADHD with flying colors uh, and turned out I, I am indeed on team squirrel, you know, then, then also had to get through the hurdles of, you know, dealing, dealing with, you know, getting, getting medications and dealing with providers who were not, not fantastic. You know, there, there are a lot of hurdles and, and I had a lot of privilege as a, as a white passing and masculine and attorney raised by doctors to be able to advocate for myself But it's horrific out there (laughs) trying to manage those things. You know, when I tried medication, it was a whole new world. You You have that moment of like, oh, my God, is this what it's like for other people? So
1: much of what you've said is very similar to the realizations that I had about the medicine and realizing I had been living almost 35 years with this brain fog. I kind of describe it as... You know, it felt like I had been living with a dryer sheet, like shoved up in my forehead. And then all of a sudden I took medication. I started the medication on day one and it was like somebody just ripped it out and you don't know what you don't know. And I applaud you for acknowledging and realizing the privilege that comes with the fact that you were able to be diagnosed and that you had lived a life knowing how to advocate for yourself. And You know, it is frustrating. You go back to everyone's diagnosis story, and they're so different. But how wonderful for you to be in that situation where you had a clinician who asked the right questions and who didn't just dismiss you and send you on your way with a prescription for depression medication. They took the time to kind of understand
0: the complexities of ADHD, Absolutely, and I, I do want to note here for for listeners that you know even with all of my privilege, I still brought a friend into that evaluation with me to help me advocate. I think it's it's very common to think you have to do this on your own, and that can be really intimidating and really scary. And you just you don't. You can bring a friend. You can bring a family member to help you advocate for yourself um, to not get dismissed. And yeah, that dryer sheet that you're talking about, absolutely, just like cotton stuffed in, and then. You know, the the analogy that kept coming up for me when I was explaining it to my my therapist later was it it felt like I'd been, you know, herding cats all my life, just trying to get them, you know, in order, at least know where they are, keep them out of trees and fires and all that stuff. And when I took the medication, they formed this delightful little cue and took a number. (laughs) (laughs) That is a great image. I'm a big fan of ADHDers metaphors, (laughs) which is love, love the, the, you know, the creative, embellishments
1: so before we go any further into your ADHD story let's talk about what you're doing now because I know your diagnosis has played a role in the life you're living
0: right now and the person you are and the work you're doing thank you yes um, my my diagnosis uh, is is one of the best things that ever happened for me it just completely changed my life. And you know for for those for those who aren't put off by the the hokey life wheels, if I were to do a, a life wheel, which I often uh, invite my clients to do, every metric is significantly better than it was prior to my diagnosis. So once I got diagnosed and got on medication, I was lucky enough to find a therapist who specialized in ADHD. and I also started a a Facebook group for friends and friends of friends with ADHD because we have this strange tendency to just sort of gravitate towards each other. You know, if you're if you have ADHD, it's very likely other people around you have ADHD whether they know it or not. And so in that group, more and more of my friends realized that they also had ADHD. One of them decided to become an ADHD coach and go to the ADCA school for ADHD coaches. I was so inspired that I followed suit. And and we started building community for queer folk with ADHD. And that was a, an organization called Queer ADHD. It unfortunately, you know, is, is no longer around. Uh, however, we needed to carry that, that space forward, that, that opportunity for community and connection and support and coaching. And so we've launched neuroqueer.org, which is now inclusive of ADHD and autism. That's for adults. Who are who are LGBTQ plus uh, and neurodiverse, and it's absolutely incredible. Um, we offer coaching. We do you know to do lists on Mondays. We have Wednesday check ins. We have co working. We have STEM parties. We have uh, educational webinars on different aspects of ADHD and autism. We have dance parties to get your dishes done. And in addition to the opportunity to get education about our neurodiversity. We've found that there's this this process of being diagnosed where you have to integrate this part of your identity, and it parallels the queer experience very similarly, where for all this time, you know, we, we tried to be something that we weren't, and we thought that that was the better way. And at a point, you have to stop and go, okay, the world is like this. It's not made for me. I have to choose me. And I have to make a place in this world where I can be myself that supports who I am. And of course, with ADHD, one of the most, you know, effective supports is positive niche creation. Most ADHD support does this individually through one-on-one coaching or or through therapy, but every other mental health challenge, the research says that we do this better in community. And so neuroqueer.org is a place where for many of us, for the first time, we can be in a room where we're not the weird one, where we're not too much, where we're not distracted—you know, more than other people. There's magic that happens in that space. There's a lot of, you know, relief. There's a lot of grief. There's a lot of joy. The brainstorming and and you know, laughter and and jokes are just just uh, world class. And we've got people from all over the world there. It's it's amazing. And so in, in that space, being able to create that community for the first time that, that I've been able to find anywhere, we're finding out what it looks like to create space that is neurodivergent first, that isn't based on people pleasing or acting, learning how to act like a neurotypical, but how do we function naturally? And then what does that mean for how we can create our environment to support us?
1: I'm very intrigued about the dance party to get your dishes done. I might have to just start a solo club where I do that in my own kitchen. That is, that's at like the top of the list for conflicts in our household about the dishes. I'm in a long term relationship with someone who is very good at starting. At A and going all the way to Z, and then never getting frustrated. And so I will say, I hear dance party, I hear dishes. I haven't experienced that they go together, but I'm very excited to try it out. And I very much appreciated how honest you were about the comparisons in the parallels between ADHD and being a queer person. And as a straight white woman, and all of the privilege that comes with that, that's just something that I haven't experienced. And so I'm curious if you could dive in a little bit about that balance for you and maybe some of the frustrations that come along with having to be defined by a label that society has put on you.
0: Sure, sure. And, you know, I I also want to, if it's all right with you, push back a little bit, possibly on, you know, the idea that that experience is entirely foreign to you, if it is. You know, right now in ADHD discourse, there's so much advocacy for women in ADHD, because that's been a really neglected group for so long. The focus was just on white, Western, cisgender, boy children. Right. Yes. One of the things that, you know, Adka pointed out was that one of the most common character strengths for ADHDers is kindness and compassion. And so, Any time that there's this feeling of of like, we don't want to step on toes, we don't want to take somebody else's experience, but we want to relate. And in neurotypical culture, there's this idea that like to relate is to take something away from someone, uh, to take the attention away from them. And I've found that it's sort of the reverse in ADHD culture. And the more that we can relate, the more that we can humanize and understand one another, the stronger we are as individuals and as a community. You know. For, for example, one of the reasons why we didn't know that adult ADHD was a thing was because you know boy children with ADHD would grow up and they'd get girlfriends and wives and secretaries who handled all of their executive function. And so the ADHD disappeared. But then they hadn't done any of the self-work, so they were still emotionally volatile and they didn't know who they were and they'd have these midlife crises.
1: I've never heard that explained in such a way that makes complete and total sense to me. It is, yes, you say that and you're like, yes, why haven't we realized that?
0: Right. Once you see it, you can't not see
1: it. <laughs> I, my brain right now is just like digesting that. I just needed a moment there because it was the picture you painted is one I think so many of us can relate to, especially if we know someone, my my father being one of those people
0: one of my, you know, sort of, sort of philosophies around neurodivergent and ADHD support is, is not just to teach and create cultural accommodations. You know, I I heard somebody describe ADHD symptomology as all of, all of the effects of ADHD that are annoying to neurotypicals. And that's pretty much the, what we have on, on paper in the DSM-5. And there's so many other factors to ADHD that, you know, Russell Barkley is teaching us about and and so trying to figure out not just how do we people please and sort of do this this drag performance of neurotypicality that leaves us feeling like we're abandoning ourselves but figuring out okay like let's let's find out the folks that we haven't listened to very many you know black experiences of ADHD indigenous experiences of ADHD queer experiences of ADHD and and we're finding just just incredible aspects of this experience of you know brain chemistry, of nerve our nervous systems that nobody else seems to be looking at yet.
1: You know, you mentioned your ADHD diagnosis is the best thing that's ever happened to you. It is so clear that what you're doing is what you were meant to do. The energy you're putting out in this space is lovely. I I don't know if that's a very Midwestern way to describe it, but it's very – it feels good, like a hug. It's, it's very,
0: very nice. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And I feel like, you know, nobody does, like, wholesome appreciation as well as the Midwesterners. Oh, yes. We do wholesome
1: very, very well. Passive-aggressive, but we do love our wholesomeness. I want to talk about your own experience with ADHD and obviously hindsight is so important in all of our own journeys and we can look back and we can see moments that just stand out. And so for you, what has always been the
0: biggest hurdle with your own ADHD and how it shows up in your life? It's a great question. I mean, you know, the the obvious answer would be to say, you know, becoming becoming an attorney. I was I was completely undiagnosed going through, you know, law school and, and the California bar exam. You know, there was the irony that all the neurotypical kids were taking Adderall off label and I wasn't. And when I got diagnosed, there was some resentment there, I won't lie. But, you know, I I honestly, rather than ADHD being a hurdle for the California bar exam, I thank my hyper focus to getting me through it. You know, my, my computer crashed in the first 15 minutes of three days of testing and I had to hand write it, never having practiced that. And I, I would bet money that if I hadn't hyper-focused, I would never have gotten through it. But to give the deeper, more honest, slightly more vulnerable answer, the biggest hurdle for me has been honestly dealing with the, the grief and the, and the self-acceptance you know and there's the the grief of what would it have been like or those sort of things but the most meaningful thing that has improved my life has been forgiving myself for how i treated myself before i knew that i had adhd all of that negative self talk all of that you know why can't you just do this or you should work harder or putting myself down or you know, sort of emotionally, like whipping myself with a stick to try to get myself to do things. Like I, I was frustrated and I was trying everything and it just didn't compute. And I thought everybody had to work that hard because like you said, at the beginning of the interview, you don't know what you don't know, which is again, one of the great things about creating these community spaces where you can talk to other ADHDers and be like, oh, that's, that's not just in my head. That's a thing. Just the second you said the grief and
1: the self acceptance, that is something I am struggling with so hard. And I like to put on a brave face and pretend that I'm moving forward. And I am, but it's still kind of like the big old bag I'm dragging around. You know, it's getting lighter, it's getting easier to carry. But I'm wondering how you've worked on that because I think it's so easy to be like, yeah. I am accepting who I am and moving forward with that knowledge and giving myself grace and forgiving myself for how I treated myself. But like, that's heavy. And the fact
0: that you're there is, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I think, I think being, you know, queer and and non-binary gives me a bit of an advantage in that I've grappled with senses of selves that were not authentic to who I was, but were basically a trauma response. You know, Russell Barkley notes that one of the most common factors for children being diagnosed is peer rejection. By the age of 12, we hear 20,000 more negative messages about our behavior from adults. And so it makes all the sense in the world why we have rejection-sensitive dysphoria, right? You know, across the board, we all, you know, will ignore our own deadlines, ignore our own boundaries, ignore our own alarms. But if a friend is coming over, we'll clean the whole house. And that spoke to me of a, of a fracture in, in, in the bedrock of our trust with ourselves. You know, we'll hit snooze because we don't believe that alarm really means something because there's been this disconnect between who we are and who we think we should be. And, you know, that is, that is very much a trans experience, but that's also, I think, a cisgender experience that gets overlooked. Cisgender people also experience gender role stress. You know, every man who thinks, you know, he's not man enough every woman who thinks she's not worthy you know men who who you know feel like they have to go to the gym all the all the time or have to have you know genitalia of a certain size and women who are worried about body hair of this and it's a gender role stress it's expecting ourselves to be somebody that we're not because who we actually are doesn't feel good enough and there's this magical thing that happens when we stop expecting ourselves to be something and instead ask ourselves for what we need so instead of telling myself, Dylan, you have to get up at this time, you have to do this thing, you have to do these assignments and these projects. I started building relationship with myself the way I would with somebody else. Because with ADHD, we're very good at that. We're very good at offering compassion. We don't tend to tell people what to do because we know how much that hurts. You know, if you tell an ADHD or you should do something, even if we wanted to do that thing, it's now dead to us and we're walking the other direction. But if I ask myself, hey, Dylan, would you please wake up at this time? It's really important to me. Here's what it would do for me. My resistance melts. I'm like, yes, I'll hop through that hoop. No problem. Would love to. And that can create such a stronger foundation that then can be used to customize all of those tips and tricks and strategies and skills for ADHD so that they actually fit who I am so they're not something, an additional burden I have to carry.
1: I love the idea of treating yourself the way you would treat other people because it's spot on. And the lengths I will go to make someone else happy versus what I'll do for myself. And so I'm wondering when you're having those conversations with yourself, where you're asking something of yourself in a way that, like you said, if you set your alarm and you get up at this time, this is what it will do for me. This is how it will make me feel. Are you doing that at a specific time during the day? Do you make a list? Is it just kind of having that moment of clarity and alone time and mindfulness? Because I think of how my brain works and I might have that conversation. And then, you know, like three hours later, it's gone.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And there, and there is there is an aspect of ADHD that feels a little bit like some sort of like time travel detective story of like what happened yesterday. What did I agree I would do? What I what did I agree I would do? You know, carving out you know moments for mindfulness, having you know presence of of mind for for routines. That's a that's a whole thing, and and I caution against you know giving giving sort of you know rote instructions for these things. Because it's so easy for us to to people please, to play act, you know, and then the system breaks down, and we blame ourselves rather than the system. So what's what's worked for me is to pay attention to what I do, notice the times when I'm sitting down and I'm you know numbing myself out from other stimulus with something mindless, and said choosing to have a moment to collect my thoughts, collect my sense of purpose. And I'm doing it not because I have to, but I'm doing it because it's going to make the rest of things go easier. So instead of this thing that I'm trying to remember to do, trying to force myself to do in that sort of responsibility obligation thing, I'll write things down because then it means I don't have to carry it in my head. And I get all that extra mental space. You know, my method of ADHD coaching and and self-work absolutely is more of finding out how to get out of the way in the right direction to make things easier, to make it authentic to how I function so that I don't have to, you know, remember a system that's going to break. You know, I, I want less to hold.
1: I love that. And so much of what you're saying, it's like looking back and seeing the different variables that are at play when you feel your best and when you're getting out of your own way and you're, you know, that idea of, I know if I go to the gym, I'm going to feel great because I'm around people I enjoy and that's a part of the variable system. I'm doing a workout I enjoy. Again, another thing that you pay attention to. And so writing those things down and paying attention to where you are and what's around you and who's around you, it makes total sense. But I think that it's so easy for us to just expect that where we are in life is supposed to work. And I say where we are, meaning the time, the place, the energy, the people, you know, the environment. All of those things
0: play such a role in how we function. Absolutely. I I find that a lot of us will sort of be deferent to our environment. We'll we'll assume that the environment is static. We don't get to change it. And we have to, you know, do infinite permutations and manipulations internally without any help. You know, even to the point where, you know, many of my clients, you know, don't feel like they have enough power to block off time in a calendar. Because what if I'm wrong? You know, and and getting to that point where we are actually in control of our systems rather than them them being in control of us can make a lot of difference, and it requires, you know, trying and failing and taking that as just new information. But you're exactly I exactly right. Like pom poms, going to the gym if that's energizing, if that helps you focus, other people being around, then that's a positive environment for you. You know, and so and so, what would it be like if all the areas of your life Maybe they didn't all look like a gym, but felt as supportive as that, felt as comfortable, you know, weren't as irritating as other things.
1: <laughs> I like that you're touching a bit on kind of the systems that have been put in place, because I think sometimes we just assumed that the way things are done is the way they have to be done. I. I talk a lot about this with meal planning and meal prepping because disordered eating was something that once I was diagnosed with ADHD, it kind of all came full circle. And I realized that I didn't have to live that way. That was something my brain was making up and it was putting on me. And I tell people, I'm like, you know that what people eat for breakfast was decided by somebody like you can eat whatever you want for breakfast. Does it make you feel good? Do you enjoy eating it? does it give you fuel? Great. Is it pasta? Who cares? It's this idea of like the people who set the rules. Most of them aren't around any longer. Like those rules were set a really really long time ago. So I love this idea of looking at making them up. Make up what works for you because wouldn't you rather thrive in that environment and then be considered quirky or strange and I know a lot of us fear that because we've spent our lives trying to get away from that. But now we have the power to just like kick it to the curb.
0: Absolutely. And ADHDers are are famous for our innovation, you know, our experimentation, our creativity. You know, we're not always wrong, you know, building on, on what you said about these things that we think are real, but really, you know, are just the way we've done things. Linear time. So many of us struggle with with time awareness. That's definitely one of my biggest biggest challenges you know and linear time is a cultural construct you know from my indigenous Choctaw background I will tell you like tribal time at least in Choctaw is very different you know South American cultures that I've visited and been in time is very different and you know Einstein had ADHD I, I can't think of anybody else who would look at linear time and go I don't know and then come up- <laughs> totally so I want to know when
1: you look at yourself and you look at how ADHD is playing a role in your life right now, how are you thriving? What's bringing you energy right now?
0: Oh, um, I mean, I have so much appreciation and and I'm so proud of and fairly shocked by how much I've been able to improve my life by learning about my ADHD, by becoming trained as a coach by you know having a therapist who specializes in ADHD that is one thing but what gets me up in the morning every day what gets me engaged you know what I'm so passionate about is building this neuroqueer community this incredible thing happens when people show up where they've they've never felt that relaxation before and it it's incredible and I can't wait to see all the things that we come up with in that space. And so many people just don't have access to being around other people like them. And if you think about that, that's just mind-blowing. It's it's assumed that we all have that. And so many of us are isolated, and that's just terrible for mental health. But the, the energy there and and the love and the care and compassion and camaraderie that's built there amongst folks who you know have been isolated almost all of us have social anxiety or depression and if you ask us if we wanted to hang out with a bunch of strangers we would ignore that text message uh, or that phone call but once we're there you can't pull us away from it there's this feeling of belonging this feeling of home that we've never gotten before and i can't not fight for that you know i'd like to i'd like to take credit for the idea of building you know that community space but it's not my idea like i learned that idea And how to build community from my queer elders and from my, you know, Choctaw elders and from, you know, other BIPOC community. The value of creating community when the rest of the world doesn't support us.
1: It's so interesting how we use the Internet to build these communities. There's a lot of horrible things that are created and supported because of the Internet. And at the same time, there's so much good that comes from them. Because you are able to find the people that you can connect with that you can relate to. And we wouldn't have been able to do that if we were all isolated into our own little bubbles, especially when you are someone who doesn't look or sound or think or feel like the majority
0: of people around you. Absolutely. I think the pandemic, ironically, was an incredible gift for ADHD community and and you know, neurodivergent community. We were all at home, we had fewer distractions, we realized. It wasn't just that we had too much on our plate. It actually was us. Uh, and we got on the internet and we started building community there in a way that hadn't really ever been done outside of, you know, ADA or Chad. And for the first time, you know, we're connecting with people on on TikTok all over the world, which we still know so little about how ADHD is different across cultures um, or where it's come up in, you know, mythology and things like that which i find fascinating. I do i do have the the dream of one day i have a a piece of property in Sonoma County that was, you know, my our family's farm that burned down 2 years ago in the wildfire which was terrible, but i will say for a family of neurodivergence a forest fire was a hell of a way to do spring cleaning. I definitely get nostalgic about some things, but i i think the object impermanence <laughs> has helped me let that go. But i do dream of someday making a um you know retreat or a summer camp for ADHD adults there are you know lots of summer camps for kids but having a place where you know say we have a shed full of all the camping equipment everybody forgot to take with them last time and <laughs> all sorts of hobbies and skill shares and things and you know a big board for what amazing idea did you have today and a place where we can be in nature and just have that sort of village experience
1: I love that. And someday I hope to attend. I think one thing, if we can go back to the grief, I think of all the things I wish I would have done had I known what was holding me back, which was this monster in my life that was controlling so many things invisibly. You know, it's like the puppet master, you know, the phantom of the opera. You don't know what's there, but something's there and it's not great. And so I love this idea of a camp where we can all go back and do the things that we wanted to do or that maybe we now know that we wanted to do. And that time we had no idea that was
0: something even within our range. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that ability for us to be curious and to engage with new things, you know, there's indication that that may be, you know, a a neurological benefit to ADHD, you know, we have this developmental delay of 30% as we get to our, you know, 30s, but that creates this increased neotency. neotency, it's a word I read, but don't say often, of, you know, increased neuroplasticity. And of course, now we know that neuroplasticity extends throughout the lifespan. But I think ADHDers are always looking for new ways to do things because maybe because we've been frustrated by things again and again. But that novelty, that creativity, that fascination is something that can be distracting, but it can also be such a gift. Because for folks that don't have that, the idea of redesigning your entire life, the way that you approach life, redesigning your identity and building it piece by piece in an authentic way, I don't think a lot of people would sign up for that. <laughs> I think you're spot on with that. Yeah,
1: I struggled with thinking of all the things I could have done. and. I'm working on acknowledging that I can still do those things. I still am at a place in life where everything I've wanted to do is still completely and totally within my reach. And in fact, it's probably closer because of what I know now. And so it's like moving forward with my ADHD is like, I'm just going to do all of those things and I'm going to do them in a way that actually is going to work for me. It's like accepting that. That's so exciting. It is exciting and it feels like a gift. It does, because I know that with more people being diagnosed later in life,
0: not everyone is in that position. Right, absolutely. But it's something that, you know, we can can fight for each other to have. You know, like when I think about the hurdles for my diagnosis and I think of all the folks who, you know, don't have my privilege in getting it, it makes me so angry. You know, when I think about You know, ADHD communities still being so white and so cisgender, and how many people are left out of that? Not just left out of that, but it's not safe for them to be there. I get such a passion to create space that, you know, can at least be an invitation to start those relationships. I want everybody to get to have that gift, you know, getting to prioritize play, getting to prioritize being interested in things, getting to ask ourselves to do things. I know this is, you know, your your interview, but I'm very curious, like, what what are you going to do? Oh, goodness. I mean,
1: what list are we talking about? You know, it's, there's so many things that I've wanted to do. And I mean, even just having these conversations is something I have struggled with getting out of my own way. And I don't know if it's an ADHD thing. I'm sure there's a part of it. I'm sure it's part of, you know, being a woman and, and growing up with a lot of self-esteem issues and They all probably, you know, go back to that monster, but I've never really felt like I was worthy or good enough. And so to start doing things and putting things out there without the fear of that one person who's yelling the loudest in the back of the room that I'm not supposed to be there. You know, we've, I think we focus so much on that one loud voice in the back and to start accepting that we can do things that we enjoy without fear of someone not liking it like isn't that so interesting when you're like you can do things and not worry about whether someone likes it
0: or not who knew right right absolutely absolutely and you know do you do you also find that that one loud voice in the back is so much louder than all the teeny tiny little mouse voices that are like hey we did this thing this one time and it worked out it was great absolutely it's It's the one you focus
1: on. It's the one that sits there. It's the one you go back to. I mean, I can pull up so many moments of shame and embarrassment, just, oh gosh, like complete self-annihilation from first grade. And to know that there are people who walk around life that aren't dissecting trauma from first grade, like every single day of their life. You can't be mad. You're just like, Gosh, that is good for you. Like heck, yes.
0: Yeah, I, I think I think for me, it's it's sort of just like a that must be nice. Like I can't even comprehend. <laughs> I was having that
1: conversation once with a friend. We were talking about neurotypical people. We were actually talking about our significant others and how we were explaining to them once what anxiety felt like, and they had no idea what we were talking about. And what an amazing gift to not know what that feels like, to not be able to identify that. Pit in your stomach that we all can start feeling and we start growing. And you're like, all I can do is say, Good for you. Like, that is amazing.
0: You can't even be mad. You're like, I'm not envious. I'm just really happy for you. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that, if that response, that like graceful, like caring, like boundary response that you have to those folks, I wonder if that could also work. You know, on that that voice in your head that's shaming of like, I hear that you wish that went differently. I'm I'm glad that you're advocating for something different. <laughs>
1: Working on it. I I also am in therapy with someone who specializes in ADHD. And I think it's so important that we all find what works for us. And sometimes I think people think of therapy as this, you know, very stuffy, very like Fraser Crane sitting on a couch, lots of dark wood and books and Therapy can be whatever you want it to be. That's the thing I would want people to know, you know, like you set the standard of what your sessions are going to be.
0: Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, I was in therapy before I was diagnosed with ADHD and a therapist who would just sort of sit back and like, let me talk. And of course, because ADHD, I can talk a blue streak forever. You know, I just sort of felt like I was on display or like a zoo animal, you know, and they wouldn't relate. And then when I got an ADHD specialist therapist, you know, she's engaged. She's, you know, challenging me with questions. She's relating, you know, with boundaries to some degree. So I know that she really understands what I mean. And it's night and day. I've made, you know, so much more progress in, you know, my, my, you know, couple of years with her than I made in, you know, a decade with other therapists. So, I think you know, finding a therapist that actually works for you, that you're not, you know, people pleasing to, or just going along with like you said earlier, because that's the way it's done, can just make a world of difference.
1: One thing in the time speaking with you that I just find so powerful is how confident you are in yourself. And I'm wondering if you've ever thought or tried to pinpoint where that confidence came from, you know, that confidence to be your authentic self.
0: Well, I mean, I would like to take a lot of credit for it. I, I have to, you know, admit that I am only an extrovert on TV. I am an introvert at home by myself. But, you know, even before I became the current manifestation of myself, before I came out as queer, before I, you know, explored and embraced my non-binary identity and ADHD, I never really fit in. And I think that that's something a lot of ADHDers experience, but also something that a lot of folks from oppressed identities experience. And you know, when you're queer, often, unlike, you know, oppressed racial identities, you're sometimes born into a family that doesn't share the same trait. And I was always a tomboy. Like it was, I couldn't have been like, you know, a femi cis woman, no matter how much anybody paid me. And there are some very awkward photos to prove this. And so I just didn't really have another choice, but to be me, you know, I I would try to be other things and it just didn't work at all. didn't get, even get off the ground. And I think that there was something in there about trying to be something that I'm not, that you know would hit that rejection-sensitive dysphoria just make me feel even more misunderstood. So even if I didn't know fully who I was, doing the best I could and just accepting that I was going to be a bit discordant was just something that I couldn't really escape uh, as a kid and growing up and, and really had to settle with. And I do think that that built a lot of resilience and a lot of self-confidence because this is just what it is but as i've grown into myself as i've become more of myself i can now be grateful for those aspects grateful that i have you know less to put down less backtracking to do it's so much more relaxing just being yourself than trying to be you know yourself and however many other identities you're putting on to please other people and you can find places where that is accepted and not just tolerated or, you know, dealt with or managed, but fully celebrated and embraced as corny and cheesy as it sounds. (laughs) You know, just tying that back to ADHD, we do so much. We try so hard (laughs) all of the time. It's a lot. It's so much. (laughs) It's just efficient. You know, self-confidence at a certain point is just efficient. (laughs) That is such an interesting way to look at it. I've... Never heard it described that way, but you're right. It's like the easiest way to go about it. Right, right. All that self-doubt. It's heavy. It takes a lot of time. Just put it down. Just walk away from it like a phone that's ringing. You don't want to pick it up.
1: You've touched on so many amazing things. And I want to end by asking you, if you were to send out into the universe one message about what people should understand about ADHD, what is that little nugget that will help them understand it better?
0: you know, in ADHD discourse, there is so much time and energy put onto, you know, pinning down exactly what ADHD is, what executive functions are, you know, there's over 30 different models for executive functions. Russell Barkley did a really great, you know, lecture going through all these different models and, you know, why they're ridiculous and, you know, where to start on that. And there's all these things about, you know, is it trauma? Is it, You know, genetic, we know that it's genetic and that, you know, trauma also plays a part. But there's still so many people in our ADHD community that we haven't gotten to ask what their experience of ADHD is like. And it doesn't really work to tell people, like, you know, go out and be inclusive because we don't know how yet. It takes relationship building. And so I want to invite folks to share in two of, I think, the greatest gifts of ADHD things that give us so much compassion. And that is play and curiosity. Before trying to define it, before trying to take up a new planner or a new calendar or get the dishes done all the time, if you're a neurotypical person trying to understand somebody in your life who you care about and love, who has ADHD, take a step back from the stress, from the pathology of it, and start with play and curiosity. You know, you'll build trust, you'll build relationship, you'll have a better time. You'll think of questions and perspectives that you never would have considered from this narrow perspective of like, okay, let's go through the checklist. And, you know, neuros- neuropsychological tests for ADHD, you know, even, even Barkley says they're not worth much because they don't factor in situational variability. We have to see how we respond in in context, in relationship. And that can't be on a worksheet. So I want to invite folks to to play and be curious with each other and figure out, you know, what it's like. I'm I'm waiting for somebody to come up with a podcast that's, you know, an ADHD or somebody who's autistic and a neurotypical, and and the name of the podcast is wait, you do what?
1: <laughs> and it's what, three hours long, and it doesn't have a set schedule when it comes out. Although maybe with the neurotypical they would be
0: scheduled
1: you know, one episode would be an hour and then it would be three hours and,
0: you know, just all over the place. Either either that or I've I've been supported so much by structure in my relationships with autistic folk. There is an untapped opportunity for collaboration between ADHDers and autistic people that I am just fascinated by. And of course, the folks who are dual diagnosis.
1: Yes. Again, so many of us with ADHD, that's the question. I think it's like, is there that dual diagnosis? And that is another conversation to have. (laughs) Another can of worms. (laughs) Dylan, I could spend all afternoon talking to you. This was such a pleasure. I am so grateful for your time and your insight and for you sharing your gifts with us here on Refocus Together, but for all that you're doing, putting out into the world for people with ADHD and working to build the community that you are, it's just... Thank you seriously
0: so much. Oh, thank you for inviting me so much Lindsay and thank you for doing this project. I, I really hope that there are folks out there who hear interviews across the month and are like, oh my god, I relate to that and then have a touch point, a resource that they can connect to And you know if there are folks that you know connect to this one, please find me at neuroqueer.org reach out you know send a contact. I'm here for the community. Okay,
1: am I the only one who listened to that and is totally ready to take on the world? What an episode. What incredible insight from our friend Dylan Alter. Truly, I'm kind of floored right now. Like, listening back and hearing Dylan so confidently flip the conversation around to help me, to encourage me to find growth and self-acceptance, that's a special person right there. And as a former high school cheerleader, I'm obsessed with the pom-poms because sometimes we need our people to show up for us and support us in a big way, and pom-poms just scream extra. I also love Dylan's inspiration for the work they're doing in their own life, this idea that every choice and goal and step forward is meant to help them hold less. We all hold so much, and sometimes I think we forget that we don't have to be doing that. It's hard. It's definitely a hard lesson to learn and then actually put into practice in your own life. But Dylan laid it out in a way that makes it seem so accessible, so easy and carefree. I also really loved reconnecting with the idea they threw out there. You know, if we all thought about the place where we feel the most supported, the most able to be ourselves, a place that encourages growth and mistakes and grace and laughter, what would the world be like if we found ourselves in those spaces every day, all day long? What would we all be able to accomplish if we constantly felt the way we feel when we go to those places that feel special to us? We without a doubt need more of that. We need to identify our own spaces and figure out what makes them special, and we need to encourage that growth and development so that we have more of those spaces to show up to. My final takeaway, something Dylan said very quickly but packed a pretty impressive punch, was about self-confidence. They said, self-confidence at a certain point is just being efficient. For every single one of us who's ever been told we're too much or we're too confident or we're too bold or we're too out there, your self-confidence, it's really cutting out a lot of the work, a lot of the masking that comes when we try to please other people. And I love the way Dylan framed it because it is being efficient. Think about all of the different people we become throughout the day And what it would be like to take that person off our to-do list and just be comfortable and okay being ourselves. That opens up a lot of time and energy and space for whatever you want out of life. I'm so grateful to Dylan for sharing their story with us. You can learn more about them and the work they do in a couple of ways. First, check out neuroqueer.org. It is full of resources and events aimed specifically at supporting the neuroqueer community. You can also check out Dylan's coaching resources by heading to alternativeadhd.com. And of course, as always, we have those links shared for you in the show notes. If you aren't following on social media yet, we have a lot of really great stuff lined up for Pride Month, and we would love it if you would head on over to our Instagram account at refocuspod and give us a follow. Also, a reminder, the easiest and cheapest way to support this podcast is to give us the good old rate, review, subscribe, wherever you're listening right now, or share the podcast with your social networks. Maybe it's a favorite episode or a story you really connected with from Refocus Together. It might not seem like a lot, but for us, those are pom-pom moments, and we do not take them for granted. And we've also made it easier for you to show us some love online. You can head to the show notes to find a direct link to share a review on your favorite streaming platform right now. Thank you so much for listening to and supporting this podcast. If you're new here, my name is Lindsay Gensel. I am the host and executive producer of Refocused, a podcast all about ADHD that would not be possible without the incredible talents of the team I get to work with every day, including Phil Rodeman, our coordinating producer, who leads our live production, scheduling, and audio editing, Sarah Platinitis, our managing editor responsible for leading our research, as well as our guest and show development. Al Chaplin, our go-to for planning, creating, and organizing content strategy for social media. Support for this podcast comes from our partner, ADHD Online, and a big thanks to the incredible team of people I'm honored to work with every day, including Keith Boswell, Suzanne Spruit, Melanie Mile, Claudia Gotti, and Trisha Merchandani. Our show art was created by Sissy Yee of Berlin Gray, Our sound engineers are the incredible duo at EXR Sounds and Vision, Eric and Amanda Romani. And our music was created by Louis Inglis, a singer-songwriter from Perth, Australia, who was diagnosed with ADHD in 2020 at the age of 39. Finally, a big thanks to Mason Nelly over at Dexia in Grand Rapids, Michigan, for all of his help in getting our videos ready to share with you guys. Links to all of the partners we work with are available in the show notes. To connect with the show or with me, you can find us online at RefocusPod, as well as at Lindsay Gensel. And you can email the show directly hello at refocuspod.com. That's hello at refocuspod.com. Take care of yourselves and please in an effort to reduce the unbelievable amount of stress we all carry around with us unnecessarily, Be a little kinder to yourself this week.